Welcome to episode 304 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. It might surprise you to learn that when it comes to online events, I think the content of your session is not the most important thing. Of course, the content matters. It has to be valuable and educational, maybe even inspirational. But when it comes to making your event memorable and actionable, the most important thing is how you design it. Join me on November 2nd for a two-hour session where we will design together a thoughtful, deliberate online event focused on purpose, intent, and the expectations of your participants. Sign up at robbysamuels.com forward slash better zoom for the online facilitation and purpose first design workshop. Let's work together to make your next online session one that will not just be attended, it will be unforgettable. Now onto this week's interview. Today's guest is the referral diva and has more than two decades of experience generating business by referral. She's the founder of Master Connectors, Inc. and the creator of Referrals On Demand, a program that teaches solo entrepreneurs how to turn their network into a referral generating machine. She calls her process referral alchemy. When fully implemented, it can infuse tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars into your business without a single dollar in ad spend. She is passionate about increasing prosperity across the globe and uses her business to further the efforts of 10 by 3, an international nonprofit creating economies of scale in third world countries by turning artisans into entrepreneurs. Please join me in welcoming Virginia Mooskies. Hey, Robbie. Thanks for having me today. Virginia, thanks so much for joining us from your place in St. Louis. Thrilled to have you here. Uh, As you know, it's a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Um, Wow. So uh, leadership is relationship, number one. Um, The difference between a leader and a manager is managers focus on the process and leaders focus on the people. So I believe that the best leaders manage processes and build relationships with people. Um, And I think we can talk about like what I think about what the best ways to do that are. But that's really, for me, the context of leadership And I have interestingly um, always known, like I've always been at the head of the class. I've always been wanting to, I'm a visionary. So I'm like, let's do this. Let's do that. The challenge that I had along the way was wanting to manage the people, like get people to do stuff as opposed to inspire and influence people to join a mission or join a vision or follow, you know, to see the big picture. And, um, where it really, where I really got into the the moment when I thought, if I don't learn this, I am just going to be doomed to having managerial positions for my whole life. And I was miserable anytime I was in a J-O-B job and I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so two things that I had to learn were empathy I had no empathy skills, grew up in a household with two alcoholic parents who provided for every material need possible, but every emotional need was not there. So I had to learn empathy and then I had to learn influence. 
So um, that came about about 10 years ago. And, uh, and I've just been working on leadership and re- building relationships with others ever since. I love how clear you are about both sort of who you were as a kid, and I'm going to dive a little deeper into that in a moment, but also the understanding of like what you needed to acquire in order to do this well, because it became important to you to do this well, because the alternative wasn't an option. But I can, I just knowing you and knowing your energy, I can imagine you as the kid on the playground (laughs) running around like in sort of with the, uh, Hey, let's do, let's, you know, bossy pants, man. (laughs) Big picture. Um, big picture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Were you also seen by, adults or other kids as a leader in the sense of Virginia's got a great idea or we can ask Virginia to do this or Virginia, you know, will take this on. Like, was it that, or was it more just like you were doing your own thing? So interestingly, adults saw leadership, adults saw initiative, adults saw um, production, adult adults all saw that, that kids hated me, hated me. I had no friends. I was lonely. I was like, I'm going to cry. I was lonely and I was miserable and I couldn't get anybody to do what I, what, if, and the ideas were great. And if people would just do what I said, we would all be great, but no one would do what I said. Right. Because no kid is going to voluntarily be told what to do by another kid. It's like not how the playground works, but I could not figure it out because in my house, here's how my house worked. My dad said so, and we did. My mom was um, the adult child of an abusive alcoholic man and learned to just, you know, you just kept your head down and whatever daddy said you did because otherwise you got beat. So that was sort of the household dynamic. Like we all just put our head down, whatever my, and my dad wasn't an abusive man. It was just, that was the dynamic that my mom developed as the mom in a 1950s June Cleaver kind of dynamic. So when I, I didn't like the put your head down and, and fear daddy, I didn't like that feeling. So I was like, well, I'm going to be my dad. I'm going to be the one that tells everybody what to do. Not the one that, that puts their head down and just does what somebody says. So that's really where it, like, that's the wound that it came from. Right. I don't want to be that. I want to be that. And I had two models, carpet and bully. Those were my models. So I was a bully. I think that's the hardest part when your kid is there's no nuance, there's no gradation or like spectrum of being. You have a couple of archetypes to pull from and you you pick the one that seems more palatable in the moment yep. uh, and you run with it. Uh, it. It's really interesting to think about how the difference between peers relating to you and the adults, though, because the adults see sort of the uh, the bud of what could be and through hard work and, and effort, you became that. But the the little ones don't <laughs> they don't see that potential they just see someone telling them yet another person telling them what to do well and the weirdest thing of that whole dynamic growing up was i was like i am not going to be the victim so i'm going to be the bully right those were that was the dynamic the victim bully dynamic was what i interpreted all of my situation to be and yet so i'm trying to be the bully but i wasn't good at that and so i got bullied on top of it like i was the bully that got bullied <laughs> it was robbie it was ridiculous i uh, you know and the kicker on the leadership thing is deciding like really understanding leadership is what has saved me but it's motivated out of that 
Like there can't be just bullies and victims in the world. Like as I grew up um, and, and sort of tried to, to see the world in different ways, because it's just that bully victim dynamic is so painful to live in. And I had to find a way out. And um, I think interestingly, my youngest daughter, um, I have two girls and we read a book by, I cannot remember her name, but it was called Queen Bees and Wannabes. And it was all about sort of how there are, you know, the worker bees and the queen bees and the wannabes. And the and then there were these other bees that just, they didn't play the game. So they were sort of liked by everybody. And we read that book. And my one daughter grew up being the bee that got along with everybody that was unmanipulatable. And when the girls in the on the playground were like, well, then we're not going to be friends with you. She's like, all right, I don't care. I'll go be friends with them, right? My other one grew up being a wannabe. It was, it was very strange coming from the same household, watching the two of them and we had a framework. And then I started thinking about myself as an adult and how the subtleties of the, 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 the violence, if you will, or the trauma behaviors, that they still exist in adults just as much as they exist in children. And that sort of led me to how do you, how do you become in some ways the benevolent queen bee that allows everyone at the table, allows everyone to approach. Uh, And that's been a, my kids really taught me a lot about the fundamentals of, of relationship and interacting. And, um, and my young one is really, um, it's interesting. She's neither a victim nor a bully, but she's a powerful voice for the unvoiced. And my other daughter like couldn't care less about that. But my other one is just like, man, she is like, you know, gender equality, racial equality, economic equality, like that really matters to her. And my other one's like, la, la, la. I don't I know. I think parenting is the <laughs> most um, interesting <laughs> exercise any human can do uh, for self-growth. Uh, and it's not like, of a short course. It's like a lifelong learning opportunity as they grow and become human beings that actually have opinions and, and thoughts. My young ones are, are getting to that point. Um, I, I it's, it's cool that you're able to use that frame to look back at your own childhood mm-hmm. and then help them. I mean, you're, you're talking about generational trauma that yeah. you're interrupting, which is not easy to do. And you're rewriting those stories for yourself and therefore for them um, in a way that they're going to pass along and, and however relation, whatever relationships they develop in life is all going to be based on like their, how they're rooted in the world. So it's, it's very, it's inspiring, honestly, to hear that story and to know what you've, you know, sort of where your family started and where you are and where you are now. Um, and you know your kids, I'm, I'm curious, like to go back to your earlier story though, I'm curious yeah. 12, 13, you know, you know, preteen, teenager years, like, was there a, was there a clear sense of what you wanted to do next? And was it really just trying to, it, was it more about escaping the current circumstances or was there something calling you that you wanted to go towards as you were thinking about, you know, whether it was college or like future life? Yeah. How did you think about moving forward at that time? I had no direction professionally speaking or whatever. I wanted to be loved. And I wanted to be accepted. And all of my drive has been around that 
the need for emotional, like the emotional connection and, and sort of filling in the missing pieces. Um, and ironically, like, it's really funny. So I think when you were asking before, like, where did the journey for leadership really start? It started with my friend Art Snarzik III, who became, he owned a painting company and he sold the painting company and he wanted to become a coach consultant. And he got in with some company that does assessments and he wanted to practice his assessments. And I was like, sure, you can practice on me. I'm an open book, whatever. And so he did this series of assessments and they were threefold. It was a disc, it was a values motivators, and then it was this skill set piece. So we're going over it and, you know, no surprise, the disc is like, oh, she's a, she's a DI or an ID, just depending on the day, right? Like fast paced, sometimes a people person, sometimes a get it done person, but okay, no surprises. We get to the values motivators and I'm an independent, um, I'm, I'm like super independent and I'm super economics driven. Like I like results, right? So I'm going to get results my way. No surprise. Total, total fine. We get to the skill set. And we're going through la, 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 la. And it says influence. And I have a solid 10. It's the only 10 as a skill set, influence. The only zero that I had on the skill skill set test was empathy. And I burst into tears. I think I must have looked like a cartoon character, you know, with my head flipped back and the little tears like flying out my eyes. And he goes, I just started bawling. And he said, what's wrong? And I said, oh, my God, I'm a sociopath. You're a sociopath. (laughs) And he comes right back and he says, no, you're a CEO. And I said, it is impossible to be anything but a manipulative you-know-what if I have only influence and no empathy. And he said, and that it was, is what makes you not a sociopath. Because what you have to realize is that empathy is a skill set. It's a skill set. And sociopaths refuse to recognize that their influence is empathy-free and therefore manipulation, and they will never get it. You can fix this. Like you can be better. You can be an influencer and you can be a leader. You have to get this fixed. So I ended up, I I was working with a client. Um, Her name is Deborah Woods and she has a a course called Playtime Power. And she is a play therapist. The only one of her kind that there is, the people who taught this kind of play therapy are long gone. And so she's like the only one. And I said to her, you know, one of the things that is crazy is I hated being a mom. I really, really hated being a mom. And I said, look that up. And she found millions and millions of hits for I hate a mom. Put a couple of swear words in there and you get more hits on that. And I said, you need to teach parents how to do what you do with their kids, how to become the, the, the play therapist, if you will, in their own lives with their children. And I went and I did play therapy with her because she works with severely traumatized kids, like kids that have been bit by dogs or kids that have been sexually abused by a parent or, you know, and I wasn't, it wasn't that bad, but I'm like, I'm carrying generational trauma that needs to be healed. And 
I went and did this play therapy and I played the role of the child learning to be loved because I didn't like, I couldn't feel love because I couldn't, I couldn't accept love because I never had love. Like, and to me, love didn't even exist as a love to me was I feed you, I clothe you and I make sure you don't die. That's love. Love was not be emotionally available. um, Any of that. So I had to learn that. And I remember the first time she hugged me at the end of a play therapy session, I burst into tears and I pushed her away and I screamed, it burns, leave me alone. It burns, it burns, it burns. And like that whole experience of trying to heal and working to heal that trauma, we knew we'd made headway when she could hug me as the mother figure and I could relax. And that made me start to be capable of giving love and being in relationship with people as a loving human leader um, because I could love others. And I was, I became more capable of seeing when I was hurting others. And I think that is a real important piece of being a leader because you will mess up and you will jump into, you will be leading and then all of a sudden jump right back into your trauma place and start, and start leading out of this incompetent space where you're just hurting people without, without actually realizing it because you can't plug into the, the, the subtle cues that someone has withdrawn from you or someone has thrown up the thrown up the the force fields and the the resistance and I think that was a that was really really powerful for me that that um trauma work was crazy powerful sharing this story is what's so powerful because anyone listening who has struggled with this is probably identifying really strongly and to hear both the story of the journey, also the specific tools that you use to start to heal. And Mm -hmm. that is a process you stuck with and saw results because it's not like a switch that you can just flip and say, well, okay, now I'll be, thanks for pointing that out. I'm going to be empathetic now. And that you're acknowledging that it's cyclical. Sometimes we slip back into old ways. Um, Years and years ago, I, um, I fell when I was two and a half and I broke my collarbone. And I trace that trauma to a lot of ways I showed up in the world for a long period of time, like 20 plus years, 30 years. And when I did uh, some therapy around eye movement to sensitization, randomization, EMDR, I remember like working through all of this and talking about it being, uh, it's a coat that I would put on as protectiveness, but over a while the coat starts to feel like really prickly, like this itchy, scratchy coat. Now, years later, it's really hard for me to remember what the coat is looks like or feels like. I have I have less and less of an association with that feeling over time. But anytime I feel like I'm getting even a hint that that coat's around, I I'm immediately like, okay, I got work to do because I now have tools to do the work to put me back into the good place that I can feel like I'm showing up in a positive way. And it's really it's a well, it's a healing thing to do as an adult. It's it's a self care thing more than anything. And I love that you're sharing this because I feel like to show up and be empathetic and be a leader and be able to connect people like you do, having that kind of awareness is it well, it's not just helpful. I feel like it's paramount, or else the work we're doing in the world is manipulative and maniacal <laughs> and yeah. and you know gets things done in a in a like brash you know pushy way. And I wonder if that sometimes when I've met other people who purport to network um, and they're so insecure 
And so what it shows up is, you know, talking at you for 20 minutes without asking anything about you or shoving their business card into your hand, whether or not you care and, you know, putting you on their email list without permission and just all these like behaviors that I'm like, ugh. it's partly Mm -hmm. because I imagine that if I hadn't done my own work, I could be like that. Well, I I have been like that, right? I've been that person. to that now. I'm like, oh, I don't like the people who don't get it who don't squarely put relationships first, who are very transactional. I feel like I, yeah. So I think that, you know, this, I never thought about this connection that, you know, a lot of times the work that we're doing allows us to show up so differently in the world and in a better place and, you know, more abundant and less scarcity minded and all of that. Um, and you just named that beautifully. I, did you end up going to college and have a particular career path? Like what was the, what yeah. was your focus early on in your career? Like, because this thing you're doing today, I'm, I feel like you created it out of whole cloth. Like it's not a thing that existed. <laughs> I mean, you, you've done a beautiful job, like branding it and like building up a reputation. But what was the earlier part of this? What was your role? So, yeah, I went to college. Uh, I went to the college of my father's choice. And um, I was supposed to become a computer scientist because that's what my dad did. He owned a, a data processing company that processed insurance stuff like the policies and the claims and the premiums and all of that kind of stuff. And um, so I went to college and like, I would sign up for the course and then I would drop it and then do something else. Right. And um, what I was good at is I'm really good at language. And so I became, and I've always been interested in Spanish. So from the time I was like five years old, I would, if there was a show on TV that was in Spanish or if Sesame Street came on in Spanish, I was like, uno, dos, tres. I was so excited about Spanish all the time. So um, it, it really that's that I, I was a Spanish major out of just because I loved Spanish. Right. And I've always been kind of, again, the Betty Bossy pants thing, a teacher. So Um, I've always, from the time that I was little, I would make worksheets and I'd have all my friends come over and then make them do worksheets. Go figure. I had no friends. Like they would get off the school bus and be like, we want to like kick a ball. We don't want to go home. We don't want to go to Virginia's house and do worksheets. Right. So I was like, I've been a teacher forever, forever, ever. And I've been, I loved Spanish. So I became a Spanish teacher. Um, and, um, you know, it was great. Uh, I was great in the classroom. I was a little defined. I was a bit of an entrepreneurial teacher, Um, One of the greatest, my greatest claims to fame as a teacher was that I taught Spanish and, you know, people like had to take a language, but really English and math and chemistry mattered more than Spanish. It was just that it was an elective. So I was like, all right, well, I can't take it any, I can't force them to take it any more seriously than they're going to. Like, I can't make them want to do well. So I had this deal in my classroom, which was the only rule I had in my classroom was if you weren't going to pay attention, I needed you to sit in the back and not set the don't pay attention example to everyone who wanted to pay attention because they would naturally be drawn to the negative behavior versus the positive behavior that they wanted because negative is four times more powerful than positive. So I said, I need you to like, go back there. And so I created this thing in my classroom called La Isla de No Me Importa, which translates to the island of I don't care. And I put palm trees up and I gave people passports to the island. And so you would just get a stamp in your passport and you could go sit at the island. And, you know, I had the desks facing the back where there were pictures of palm trees and stuff. And the the key was, though, if you weren't in class that day, you just lost the points for that day. Whatever we were doing, you got a zero for the day and you could choose it. And I let people have their own consequences. So as a result, I had a really fun classroom 
And people made their own decisions about whether they just really needed to study for that chemistry test. And it was worth losing points on your Spanish grade to get points on your chemistry test, which I thought was brilliant. My people in my world, the teachers and the, the administrators disagreed with me wholeheartedly. And I really didn't care. I was like, so sue me or fire me. I, like, this is how I, this is how I keep my sanity. And, um, and then the other thing I did that was really fun as a teacher was I created worlds. So every classroom was a telenovela and every person in the classroom had a persona. So like you would not have been Robbie Samuels, you'd have been, you know, Roberto Concha or whatever. And you would have developed a persona for yourself and you would have decided what is your job and what does your house look like. And so whenever we had like, you're going to learn furniture, you would learn about furniture. But then like the assignment was you're going to like cut pictures out of a magazine and design your living room. And then you're going to show everyone and give everyone a tour of your living room. So this is La Casa de Roberto Concha. And that's how we contextualized everything, right? And then we would have these interactions where like, like Roberta would, Roberto would be really interested in being an engineer and, you know, so it was fun, but that necessitated me writing a test, a different test for every class because it had to incorporate then I would write the test like in La Casa de Roberto Concha, you know, there's a blank in front of the couch and then they would have to write mesita or whatever. So I had to, you couldn't do that for all these classrooms. So I was like super entrepreneurial as a teacher and I was really super popular, but it was a lot of work. It was a lot of work. And I have great. a friend who um, just wrapped up a career as a Spanish teacher. And I'm going to share all this with her and get her take. Because to me, it feels like you're you're giving kids a, the ability to opt in because they yes. have the ability to opt out. And yes. opting in, self-opting, saying, oh, no, no, I am going to be present today means they're going to get more out of that experience because it's mm -hmm. not mandated. And that is yeah. a scary thing for uh, administration. And I even think I want to just bring this to the world of virtual events for a second. Yes. Yeah, I yeah. Was talking to a new um, client and their schedule was two and a half to three hours of content, 15 minute break, two oh. hours of content. <laughs> and um, okay, I, yeah, I'm going to so, mute for a minute. <laughs> so, and I was like, it's just this fear that if you give people the ability to step away from their desk, like they're going to just leave, right? It's like this, right. we must lock them in the room and throw away the key for two and a half, three hours. And then of course people have to pee, I guess. So we'll give them 15 minutes. And I rewrote there. I made it three hours, uh, two hours longer. And I built in half an hour breaks after every 90 minutes to max two hours, depending on 75 minutes. But yeah. Yeah, I was like, but they got to have these half hour breaks and we got to make these sessions interactive. And I think like people are like, I'm beginning of the, in the beginning of the pandemic in particular, I heard this a lot from, from people like, Oh, but like, if we don't mandate this, if we don't lock them in, you know, and like you're saying, if you give people the opportunity to choose, they're just more likely to be present, to be engaged. I, I you're very true that it's very entrepreneurial, but you're not still a Spanish teacher. So when did you yeah. realize, I mean, it sounds like you like the entrepreneurial thread. Did you, did you know other entrepreneurs? Was that part uh, of it? My dad was an entrepreneur. Like my dad was, my dad worked for, I get them completely confused, like Univac, Unisys, whatever, like the big computing company in the early sixties, right? late fifties, early sixties, my dad worked for them. 
And then that they got bought out by RAS or something. And then that created Unisys. And, and they, the story that he tells, whether it's the story that is true, but this is this, this is the generational story is that they called him in and they were like, Hey, John, we're getting rid of your entire team, but you get to stay. And my dad said, like, I'm a Navy man and a Navy man, like a Navy man goes down with the ship. So they stay or I go. And they were like, well, here's your box, John. See you later. <laughs> right. Like, it was like, well, you're not that important a cog in the wheel and we're doing you a favor by keeping you. So he left and and um, started <clears throat> he started getting courted by these other companies, these com- competitors to to Unisys or Univac or whatever that company was. And um and they started like wanting to hire him to build million dollar sales divisions. Cause like I get all my showmanship and all my salesmanship from my dad. And one morning he woke up and he was like, you know, if they're willing to hire me, if I'm that good, they're willing to hire me, fly me to Texas, get me like, put me up in a gated community with swimming pools and send my kids to private school. Doesn't it sound like, like the John Grisham novel, the firm, like it was really bad. It was very Stepford wives. It was during that, the time the Stepford wives came out and all that kind of stuff. And he's like, a, you're not going to tell me where to live. B you're not telling me where to send my kids. Like, you're not going to determine that for me as my boss. And number two, he just thought, what the heck? I'll just, I'll just go build it for myself. I'll I'll be a competitor to all y'all. He niched down into the insurance market. Like he was really organically very smart about it. Put us on a 12 acre farm and said, well, here's the deal. We won't starve because there's a vegetable garden, there are fruit trees and there are deer out there that I can shoot. And so we lived, I didn't know this back in the day, but we kind of sort of lived off the land for the first several years that my dad was an entrepreneur. Um, and I never really knew we were poor, but that, like, th- it's that sort of like, I didn't know we were, we were poor, like sort of, but we had a house. We were in danger of losing the house. We were in da- like, but, but we lived off the land. And when we moved there, I had an outhouse. I didn't have, an, I didn't even have like working indoor plumbing. There was an outhouse and my dad replaced the outhouse with a septic system. Right. Like, so but I know I was like, what the hell do I know? I just was like, woo, go outside, climb trees. It was fun. Go to school. Amazing. Um, so that's where that entrepreneurial thing kind of comes from. I think the day I decided I was done with academia, I had left teaching the all boys boarding school that I taught at right out of college, come out to uh, St. Louis, went to Washington University, um, got my my uh, was working on my PhD. And an interesting note was that I applied to a number of schools. Um, Vanderbilt University offered me gobs of money and a six-year scholarship, a research scholarship that was somewhere in the neighborhood in like 1992, okay, of like $17,000 a year stipend and no teaching responsibilities. And instead, I went to Washington University for $8,000 stipend and, um, and like a teaching load of God knows what, you know, like, like four courses or something. It was ridiculous. So, um, I, cause I'm a teacher and I remember, um, my friend Linda came by and she said, Oh my gosh, Virginia, if you sign up and I sign up, Julie's going to get her car. And I thought, well, you know, far be it from me for Julie to have to ride her bicycle to school every single day. So fine. I'll sign up and be a Mary Kay beauty lady, whatever, but I'm not selling any of this to anybody ever. Don't ask. So I end up 
at a Monday night gathering at Julie's house after having signed up to not sell Mary Kay cosmetics. And um, the sales director her name's Terry Tolley. She's a beautiful lady to this day. We are still friends is going around the room and going like, so Susie, what's your goal? And Susie's like, I'm going to win a car. And she's like, oh, I totally believe in you. And then she goes to the next person and the next person's like, I'm going to sell a hundred dollars. And she's like, I totally believe in you. <laughs> and she comes to me and I go, I'm not selling this crap to anybody. And, and she looks at me like she just stops dead in her tracks. And she goes, I believe in you. You totally can do that. And it made me so mad because I thought she was being patronizing and I was kind of really wanted a fight, you know, like I wanted her to convince me to sell something. And she was like, I totally support that decision. I believe in you. I believe that it is within your power to sell nothing to anyone ever. I know you can do it. And then she went to the next lady who was like, I sell 32 mascaras, right? So I was so mad about it. Then I went out and started selling stuff. And I was, I became the number one salesperson in the St. Louis market in 90 days. Cause that's the only way I could get applause. Oh my God. Uh, right. It's amazing how you're you everywhere you go. Everywhere. <laughs> well, here's the really funny story. So um, Terry lives, we moved from St. Louis to Illinois and Terry lives just like 30, like 30 minutes from me or whatever, like really close. And she, they have a dairy farm and, so I take my grandson out to see the dairy farm and to see Terry. And I go, Terry, I got to ask you a question. Do you remember when la la la? And she goes, I totally remember that day. And I said, you totally put me in my place. And she said, Virginia, I don't know how or why it worked, but that like, I just knew that whatever you said, I was supposed to say, I totally believe you can do that. Like that was the, that was the routine. And so you said that. And I was, and I thought to myself, this makes absolutely no sense, but it's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> and her scripts inspired you. <laughs> yeah. She was like, it, she said, you scared the cooties out of me. I went home that night and called my upline and cried for like three hours about this woman. <laughs> it was so impossible. <laughs> and, she's, and she's like, and you turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to my business. Right. And I said, you know, sometimes the scripts just, just work. Um, but that was my entrepreneurial journey. That's where it started. Left academia because I I heard Jim Rohn's tape, his lecture on you become like the, you become the average of the five people you hang out with. And I didn't want to be like anybody I was hanging out with. And I thought, okay, if I don't want to be like these people, and I don't want my kids to look like their kids, like I didn't want any of that. And I was like, I gotta go. So I just got in my car, drove away, and quit. Became wow. a Mary Kay. Mary, became a Mary Kay consultant. And a lot of the yeah. referral piece that you now do, mm -hmm. it makes sense that if you're doing this direct sales, that mm -hmm. that is that's word of mouth, that's referrals, that's reputation, right? That's following up, that's asking and asking again and following up again. And mm -hmm. I mean, with with a particular goal in mind. Mm -hmm. And once you know how to do that, now you know you can yeah. you realize at some point you can apply that in other spheres of your life, or you can teach other people. When did the product or service that you were offering become not the the Mary Kay, not Mary Kay, but just the I can teach you how to do a thing? And you, of course, love teaching. So not surprised. There. So that was the easy part. So here's the deal. We were talking about leadership early, earlier, right? My in my lack of leadership ability actually ruined my Mary Kay business because I became a I became a sales leader with the company and then started Betty bossy pantsing 
people who were volunteering to sell stuff. So, you know, all you had to do is annoy them. They didn't need a part-time Mary Kay gig or whatever. And I, so I was like trying to make everybody be a red jacket and make everybody want a car and make every, right. Like make everybody. And so it just, it all crumbled uh, because my leadership skills were so pathetic. So um, I ended up like $40,000, $20,000 in debt. It was, I had, uh, it was a mess. Um, and my dad bailed me out, but I was 40 years old. I almost, I like, I was addicted to the bumblebees and the success and the walking across the stage. And I would do, I, I mean, I made ridiculous business decisions to win $500 of jewelry, you know? And so I ended up bankrupting myself and I got hired on by a guy um, who is still my friend. Uh, his name is Brian Jones. And he owned a bunch of Sylvan learning centers and um, so he hired me to be his, the center director for his largest center. And uh, little did he know like what a total fraud I felt like because he saw my sales acumen and I'm like, and I'm $20,000 in debt and my husband's threatening to divorce me if I don't get a job and take care of this. And my whole family is falling apart. And <clears throat> so I ended up doing that. And then No Child Left Behind got authorized and he could not crack the nut. And um, I was like, that's because you're not a teacher. You have like, you're a businessman and the urban people don't trust you. You're, a, you're an upper middle-class business owner who wants to come in and get their title, their title, whatever money. Right. And so they don't, they don't see that. And I could see that part. So I went in and started trying to figure out how to crack the nut and, uh, you, you know, listener, your listeners can't see me, but you know, I'm albino, <laughs> You know, like, so going into East St. Louis, Illinois and St. Louis City, um, I didn't have a lot going for me from the look, from the looking vantage. I don't look like them. So how do you borrow trust? How do you get trust? Well, you have to find the commonalities with influencers and then get the influencers to help you. So I ended up... Um, Building on, I'm the first, I grew up in rural America eating, eating meat, which really was squirrels, muskrats, groundhogs, you know, pheasant, whatever daddy could shoot. Um, and maybe that's not the same as being urban poor, but still it's kind of, you know, that common experience. And I was the first person to get an advanced degree in my family. And so a lot of people my age that were teaching and influencing and trying to trying to make a difference in that environment were in the same boat. They were returning to their home, their, their, their city, their, their communities and working to make a difference. And the day I succeeded was the day that I got these, a community center director, um, a school administrator and a church uh, education director and got them together. And it was all over a copy machine. And I said, look, you have, the school has a copy machine, but you never have toner and you're always begging for paper, right? The teachers are always having to buy paper out of their salary, which is not that great. And, you know, and, and I said, but over here, this community center keeps getting paper by the pallets. Like, Oh, let's donate some paper. They must need paper. Right. So they've got these pallets of paper and, and no way to do anything. And the church has an old, has a broken copy machine, but tons of toner. I'm like, why don't we let me get my guy to exchange this toner for the toner for that copy machine. You donate the paper, you donate the toner. And then after hours, you guys 
can hire a student from the school to make all your to make your bulletins and make your flyers and make your stuff instead of going to Kinkos and paying 20 cents a copy. Right? So they all got together and then everybody was happy because the school didn't have to send stuff to Kinkos or send stuff to the district and wait to get it back. And everybody saved money and whatever. And they were like, well, what can we do for you? And I said, you can get third, third to fifth graders to sign up for my program because third to fifth graders were where I could get results. They, we got paid on attendance. So where do third to fifth graders go? Mommy needs after school care. May as well have them come to my program. Right. And, and they're like, and I said, then you can, you can refer out six through 12 to all the other vendors who also help you, who also bring you value because mm -hmm. we're all doing philanthropy. And I'm like, I don't want to take that away from you. I just want third and like third and fourth graders, just those two grades. And so we ended up going from having two or three influencers helping us to having entire communities um, backing us. And us doing philanthropy, we had not a single dollar in paid ad spend. All I said to the owner was, you know, philanthropy is going to go better over, going to work more over here than a bunch of paid advertising. So let's take that advertising budget and make sure that if a community center needs backpacks, they have backpacks. If a church needs diapers, they get diapers, whatever they needed. We're going to make that happen. And um, we ended up, I, I taught seven other people to do that. And we all built, you know, six figure, six figure business units. And at the end, the last year I did it, we grossed two and a half million dollars and we returned over half of that, over 50% of that back into the communities that we were serving in the form of hiring, paying salaries, part-time salaries, hiring the kids to stuff envelopes and do stuff. Um, and, uh, and in philanthropy to the families, the support that we gave to the families and, Somebody approached me and said, can some, they own the BNI franchises here in the St. Louis market and said, can you teach our members to do that? And I said, sure. And that's how that whole thing started about 10 years ago. Incredible story of um, ingenuity, being an outsider who can see a system differently than the people who are in the system, who are just myopic and looking at their own needs in a, in a small way and not seeing what they could offer. And you're like, I can see all this. I could describe to you the pattern and how we're going to flow resources and make it a win-win-win. And then the fact that you then train others to put together their own influencers teams and like basically everything you learned, even though Mary Kay in the end didn't work for you, you learned mm -hmm. a lot about building teams and- you Learn what not to do, that's inspiring for Inspiring sure. <laughs> others to take action because you know, maybe prior to Mary Kay, you might have tried to do all this in your own. And so here you had had some like lived, ex lived reality, lived examples of, oh, if others have even like some of my skill, we are going to be better off than if I just do it by myself. So I'll, I'll have to train some people to like work up to this level that I have. Um, and then, of course, getting BNI's attention because uh -huh. they realized like, you know, this, this is a system that we need for our members. I mean, that what, yeah. what a great introduction to the world of business referral, where the outcome really mm -hmm. is revenue. Um, it is generating, you know, new product lines, et cetera. And I can see how you demonstrated success in these different ways. And it sounds like somewhere in there is also where you got the, the lessons that you needed to learn around empathy and like, yeah. you were doing the place, the play uh, therapy and all of that. Um, do you have any, like, I always think about networking as sort of like your inner circle you're going to stay in touch with, but then mm -hmm. that second and third layer or tier out, 
the people that you maybe see once a year at a conference or you work with them five years ago. I should mention these are people you like and they like you. You enjoy them. Yes, yes. Um, how do you think about staying in touch and nurturing those kinds of looser connections? Do you have any habits, philosophies, practices? Yeah, I, I actually, it's it's the system that I teach. It's the referral alchemy system that I teach, which is um, you want to dis- you want to discern the nature of each one of those relationships. So not all relationships are created equal. And just because somebody could be a partner or could be a prospect doesn't mean they should, right? So having real clear criterion around that. Um, and so um, there are lots of ways that you can stay in touch with people just outside seeing them. So um, I say at an associate level, which is my after I meet you and I like you, uh, I'm going to reach out to you twice a year. I might I might invite you to a networking event or to a th- to a party or something along those lines, and then maybe send you a birthday card. At a level where we're cross promoting one another, which is what I call the advocate level, I'm going to want to reach out to you on a quarterly basis and just schedule a thing. And I have to just say, just for a tool a tool sake, I have um, I'm using ClickUp. And there's a really cool feature in ClickUp whereby you can set a due date and then automate it. So you can say like, okay, Robbie Samuels is an advocate. So 90 days from now, I'm going to have ClickUp send you this automated email that says, hey, Robbie, um, so it's been a while. It's been it's been a few months since we've gotten together. Really want to have a 20 minute conversation with you. Catch up, hear what you're up to. Um, here's my link. Let's let's grab virtual coffee. Let's grab coffee, right? And, and so that can actually be automated, which makes it a lot easier when you're managing a bigger network. Um, people that are constant, that are kind of connecting you to other people, you want to have some sort of reach out to them every uh, 60 days. And then people that are referring to you on a regular basis, you want to, um, you want to reach, be with them monthly. And one of the big differences, so for folks that maybe are working in the online marketing and doing like product launches, what we call J- joint venture affiliates in my system is called advocates. So there, that's you know you need to keep in touch with them quarterly. You need to know what they're up to. You need to be able to cross promote with them. But for me, a referral affiliate, you can manage about four or five of those relationships, and that's really about like here's who I met last month. I'm networking here. You're networking here. Like we're figuring out where are you networking, and where am I networking? And if we're networking in the same place. What is the strategy for you talking about me and me talking about you instead of I'm talking about myself and you're talking about yourself? How are we cross promoting each other inside that network? Do we need more breadth? Do we need more space? So what's a network I could join that would benefit Robbie? And what's a network that Robbie could join that would benefit me? And we go out and represent together. I'm representing you and me over there and you're representing us over there. And therefore, our efforts are are exponentially um, manifested, if you will. So there's, I got a whole system for that. I have to say, thank you for that snapshot. I've been doing this show now for six plus years and I love asking this question, particularly people who've like you done a lot of thinking and writing and teaching on the topic. Um, I've not heard that it broken down in that um, very clear, I can follow kind of way and I love like understand. I, I um I've struggled with CRMs and tools by putting too many people in every kind of bucket. And yes. I really loved your like explanation, just even this quick overview of you know some people. It's just twice a year, and it's just a touch base. Um, mm-hmm. so you know, and understanding the difference of when you move people to certain buckets. Um, I've you know I've been sort of building up more systems around this for me as my network has grown in the last five years. 
And yeah. I love I love hearing these insights. Um, beyond this system, like, is there some other, yeah, get, leave me another takeaway before we, we're cl getting close to wrapping up, but yeah. I know you've got like, you got a, you know, a zillion ideas. So let's get another one. <laughs> this is key. Okay. This is like super key. Cause you were just asking about like the network. Okay. So Robin Dunbar is a sociologist out of the UK who does a lot of work on this, like on, on, um, human systems, sociology and the human system. Okay. So the maximum number of people that you can really, really maintain is about 150. If you're, if you're amateur and people like you and me can probably do about 250, right? Like we can, when you get more systems in place, you can handle a little bit more, but not much more than that. Right. So then how do you discern a, do they get to be on my grid or not? Cause I can only have 250 people in my room. That's how many tickets I have. That's how many seats there are at the table who gets to, who gets a ticket, number one. And number two, um, how do you keep them? How do you, where do you put them? Right. So where, which, which tables do they sit at? Do they sit in the back? Do they get the front row? Like, where do they get to sit in the, in, at the banquet? Right. And the key here is not by your thoughts, but by their actions, not by your opinions about who they might be or could be or should be or what you want them to be, but by who they, how they actually observably show up. So if you promote me, then you get to be in the advocate promoter bucket. If you say you're going to promote me and I, and I love like, I'm like, okay, Robbie Samuels, he's got a juicy list. Our audiences are super aligned. We're like values oriented. And you like want to have a conversation once or twice a year. I can't make you do that. I just have to put you in the bucket where you choose to sit. Like you're sitting in the seat where you choose to sit by your activity and by your productivity. And so that's, that becomes, you have to be able to get your emotional stuff aside, your, your judgy stuff about what I want. And, what, and I learned this because this is how I crashed and burned my Mary Kay business. I spent time getting, trying to get people who didn't want to, to want to. And I ignored the people who wanted to because they were doing it. And huge mistake. So Thank you. Figuring yeah. out where people sit, you've got to let people choose where they sit at your banquet. When people by show their behavior, you, yeah. When people show you who they are, believe them, not when they and say. love them and love them and be yeah. super freaking grateful for for their willingness to be someone in your world. Can you run through the levels? So once or twice a year, what was the level called? Okay. That that's what I call, let me go through. There's your yeah. audience. That's the people who follow you, people who know you, but you don't know them. Mm -hmm. That's your audience. So that's, it's my five, a plus one. We ended up adding a one on that, like just recently, which is audience. Once I make your acquaintance. So let's just say you come to my get connected, stay connected, um, networking. Now we've become, now we're acquainted. All right. And so I'm going to thank you for making my acquaintance. Then I'm going to try to move you up to my associate level, which is I know about your business and you know about my business. Like we kind of know what I know what your avatar is. I kind of know what the, the transformation that you're offering is. I, I, I look at all that. And then I'm discerning whether or not you get to stay there or whether I'm just going to leave you in the acquaintance pool and 
like leave you on my auto, leave you on my email list and you can show up whenever you want to show up, right? Once I've got a good handle on who you are, what you're about, where values aligned, where vision aligned, I'm excited about what you do. Like I got to be like, this is really great. Then I'm going to advocate for you because I'm excited about what you're doing. And I, but I do expect reciprocity. So if you can't get excited about me, then no matter how much excitement I have about you, you stay in the associate pool. I'm not going to be a reciprocal advocate. And the associate pool was the four times a year? Twice. Twice a year. Okay. Twice, twice a, year. a year. The promotional advocate, advocate pool is four What's times a four year. Four times a year. Okay. Because I need to know what you're up to. You know, right. in 90 days, sense. everything changes. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Constantly. So at the then, if we're rocking and we're rolling and I'm promoting you and you're promoting me and you say, hey, Virginia, I found you a promotional partner. I'm like, okay. Now, now Robbie is more valuable to me because he promotes me. But one introduction to someone who promotes me can make me thousands of dollars and, and solve hundreds of problems for me. So now I'm going to be like, hmm, okay, Robbie, that's really hot. Who do you need to know? I think of somebody, I, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open my network to you. Before that, I'm just going to put you in front of my audience. I'm not going to open up my, my network because that's my reputation. Okay. And, and so that's six times a year is at that level. And then at the affiliate level, it's every month. It's amazing. I am definitely going to ask you in a moment how to find you and follow your work. But before I ask that, my final question, it's a year from now, I'm chatting with you because of course we are going to keep crossing paths. And I realize it's been a year since I interviewed you. And I say, what are we celebrating? What are the things that you're most excited about right now that I, I can toast you about? What are you most looking forward to the next 12 months? What I'm most looking forward to in the next 12 months is having my, my, my new brand, my referral alchemy brand fully fleshed out and really well-known. So we're going to really be celebrating that we are going to be, um, most likely, well, we'll be sell. I'm going to celebrate the heck out of being a grandma. My grandson will be five and we're having a great time. So I'm like really excited about that. Um, and, uh, in 2023, where I'm taking my mother-in-law on the trip of a lifetime for her 80th birthday. So we'll be celebrating that. And I'll probably be celebrating my oldest who's getting married um, very close to this interview, um, probably starting a family. So wow. we're just going to be celebrating lots of lots of fun family milestones. And um, I'm just going to be doing business and enjoying my life. I love it. I can't wait to celebrate all that with you. How can people find you and follow your work? The easiest way to get in touch with me is to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, and so I'm assuming there's show notes so people can find can find that. And then go to masterconnectors.com forward slash blueprint and uh, download the business by referral blueprint. And that'll get you, that'll kind of get you on the list. And um, you'll get a little e-course from me and some little welcome emails and you can opt in and opt out and do whatever you like. But that's the quickest way um, to follow me. Brilliant. We'll put all those links in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Virginia, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Robbie. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Virginia. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 304. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. 
If you enjoy this episode, please share with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained the professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.